advisory to those who are not animal lovers, open to new ideas, or interested in integrative holistic healthcare for your pets, and believe that prescription diet is the best food for your pet. This podcast may offend your sensibilities. Have you ever felt frustrated and helpless after listening and doing everything your vet told you to do but it only made your sick pet worse and not get any better? That's me in 2008 with my first adopted cat, Meow. I did everything the vet told me to do and I realised she wasn't getting any better and only worse. So I decided to look into alternative health options and was drawn to the stories of holistic pet service entrepreneurs and their transformative journey, overcoming obstacles, chasing their passion and creating a movement that has caused a ripple effect of positive change in the lives of their clients and pets around the world. Join me as I share the raw, inspiring journeys of these amazing entrepreneurs, their successes and failures. My name is Amrys Wang, and this is The Raw Entrepreneur. Good morning, afternoon, evening, wherever you are in the world right now. This is Amrys Wang of The Raw Entrepreneur. Today's episode is with the laziest man in the world who has made such a profound impact in the way I think and view how raw food should be fed to our cats and dogs. His bath light formulation has helped so many sick rescues of mine that people used to think that I was being paid to promote him. Not. He is the godfather of the bath diet, Dr. Ian Billinghurst. This is part one of his story. So who is Dr. Ian Billinghurst, please? A, a very ordinary veterinary surgeon. Um, very ordinary. Uh, I've never said I'm a holistic in the sense of being alternative or complementary. Um, through my career, I used my conventional training to which I, how, we, how do we say, we added or um, complemented or I don't know. But, but a major thrust of my, my uh, activity was to say to people, hey, the food you're feeding is producing these problems. Why don't you switch to raw? Now, I was probably the worst salesman for my own uh, ideas, uh, not because I didn't believe in them. Well, no, actually, possibly because at times I almost doubted the truth of what I could see before my eyes. I thought, could this actually be true? Um, and so, and, and I, I guess in many ways, I often didn't have the confidence when faced with people who were um, strikingly opposed to the idea to push it further. And, and in many cases, okay, well, if that's what you want to do. In fact, I did adopt that attitude to, towards people. If that's what you want to do, then go ahead. Um, because if I got everybody on RAW, I wouldn't have a practice. So... <laughs> <laughs> well, that's not quite true either, because you still do desexing and all, and all sorts of things. But um, with certainly the degenerative disease situation would be much less. And in, and for for a large part of my day to day practice, that was true anyway, because a lot of people did listen to me, and they did follow my advice, and they had absurdly healthy pets. And um, so. I began making sometimes more money um, out of books and so on than I did. I can't even say that in the first instance I made money out of um, 
consults online because I gave it all away for free. Uh, and, and that was, well, for lots of reasons. One, I'm very lazy. I, that's why another thing that uh, attracted me about RAW, being so lazy, I didn't have to do a lot to fix patients. I just had to change their diet. So, so that was that. Was that. Um, and also to ask money off people, I, I've, I've never had, that's never been my thing. I always assumed the universe would look after me. And so far it has, um, if I did the right thing or, or what I could perceive as the right thing. So, and the other thing about uh, being online and doing it pro bono was because um, I wanted to learn more. And if I gave it away, and, well, and people followed the advice, well, then I would, and, and then I got the feedback, I'd see if my advice was working. And for the most part, it, it always did. It was absolutely marvellous. Um, but mostly because of laziness to sit down and ask money, people for money and all that sort of stuff. It, it, it was boring. So I just did it. And, and you know, the, and the universe has looked after me. Somebody out there, is, whether it's <laughs> one, 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 one can have faith, and but one doesn't know it, particularly as a scientist and science trained, whether there's uh, any reason for that faith. But I guess I was brought up to have faith. So uh, it still continues. So when, when did, you know, the idea that, you know, of raw feeding first entered your mind, you know, like when, when did that, that happen? <laughs> I was, uh, oh, okay, well, I tell you, my parents didn't let me have animals. So that's number one. Um, that was, so, so, you know, it's, it's a warning to parents. If you deprive your children of something completely, they will possibly go ahead and make a life out of what you deprive them of. Anyway, but I read a book called Dog Crusoe. My, my whole mind as, as a young person, for whatever reason, uh, loved the Australian bush, and I, was, and I was a city slicker. I was born in the city, and I loved animals. And, and if I went to the zoo, the only thing I wanted to go and uh, sorry, if I went to the Royal Easter Show in Sydney, the agricultural show, the only thing I wanted to look at was um, horses and cows. I was not the least bit interested in dogs and cats. Mm. And actually, when I did veterinary science, and that's a whole other story, all I wanted to become was a, was a dairy vet. But I, but I won't go into that just at the moment. But my so my first interest was in books. Um, and I've always been a dreamer and a reader. In fact, my mum would come and find me reading before I got ready for school. And she said, get right ready for school, then read the books. And they're almost invariably about animals. Anyway, so I had this feeling with the dog Crusoe that dogs, this was about a dog in the Canadian wild, Hudson Bay, um, fur trappers and all that stuff. And there were these beautiful word pictures of dogs in the wild eating raw flesh and crunching through bones and consuming blood and uh, so i had this image anyway at, at a very early young as a young man of 22 i got my first dog i was newly married um, her name was candy she was a kelpie and what did i feed her well it never occurred to me to feed a processed pet food and mind you this was um oh goodness where was it late 60s late 60s so Australia didn't have a lot of processed food anyway. So what we did, we went to the butchers, bought some bones and meat scraps, and she had the uh, leftovers from the kids. And she was absurdly healthy. And, and you know, that, and that's to me, that was feeding dogs. Anyway, when I went to vet school, 
um, I thought, oh, well, I'm really going to learn the proper way to feed dogs. And I was, uh, and this didn't happen till final year, and we had this practical set, set of lessons. And the bottom line to this whole series of episodes was you really don't have to worry about nutrition because if the um, can says it's complete and balanced, then it is. And, um, and, and what was even more horrifying was it was an agricultural science graduate who was teaching us about nutrition. So anyway, when I, when I got into, um, into practice, I, had, well, I was quite ambivalent about what, what I taught, but mainly it was, it was about raw food. And I said, but uh, we were, then I would tell them that we were taught that processed food is the best. But the raw feeding ha has been, I guess, a part of me from, from very early childhood, in a sense. Wow. <laughs> oh, gosh. And when you started as a vet and you were starting to feed processed food as the so-called correct way, um, what, what did you sort of, was there a difference when well, you were well, Okay, but well, it didn't come about quite that way. The family at the time decided they were going to show dogs. And, and we always fed just meat scraps and what have you to our dogs, and they, they were never sick. Uh, it never occurred to us. And uh, it didn't really occur to me that all these dogs that were coming to me for problems were sick because of what they were eating. I just thought, like most vets, dogs, have, dogs and cats have problems. So we have, and we've been trained to diagnose and to treat, but never to look for this basic root cause, except uh, so... I, I just didn't really um, look for, for any of that. Um, oh, what, what was the question again? I, 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 where, where, where were we heading with all that? Well, basically, you know, when, when did you start linking the process? Oh, yeah, yeah, that's right. Because yeah. right, I was going to tell you, we, we were um, going to, into showing dogs. And the family said to me, well, look, you're a vet, you've been trained the best way to feed them. Since we're going to show them, we want them to look their absolute best. So what do we feed them? Oh, well, that's processed pet food. You get off all these scraps and bones and raw meat and stuff and feed them processed pet food. That's, that's what we've been trained to say. So we did that. And then over two years, the health of my pets deteriorated terribly. We were actually breeding dogs at the time. And we had a litters of a litter of great danes for example that all developed hip dysplasia and elbow dysplasia and stuff like that um so suddenly they started to get ectoparasites that they were they started to attract fleas um they got little problems like um ear, ear infections um their, their, their breath started to smell and the teeth began to develop tartar all these little things over two years now at that time I was studying, I just studied, began to study acupuncture because we'd been introduced to it by an acupuncturist called David Gilchrist, who's still practicing today as an acupuncturist. And uh, I then, because I couldn't believe it actually, sticking pins in animals by an inexpert hand actually made a difference. The, uh, arthritic dogs started to improve and that sort of thing. And so, wow. So I went to study acupuncture more, more completely and did a human course in Sydney. Anyway, I met a lot of um, natural, what do we call them, natural freaks or people who were interested in natural medicine. And I was talking to this, I remember there was a young lady called Sharon, and she particularly told me about feeding raw. And I thought, my goodness, 
and she introduced me to Juliet de Baraclay Levy, um, who was a, a, an English lady who, who wrote about uh, raw, raw food. And I thought, well, that's exactly what I've been feeding my dogs before they started to get sick. And suddenly, you know, it became a bit of a light bulb. So I started, we, we switched our dogs back to, to raw feeding. And at the time, there was a bit of a drought on and there was a glut of lamb. So there was, uh, they were all being sent to market because there was no food for them to eat on the land. So there was all this lamb about and we put our dogs just on, on lamb, raw meaty bones based on, on lamb. And suddenly within weeks, all these symptoms began to disappear. The, the, the mildly irritating ones, the scratching, the ectoparasites, the ear problems, the dental tartar, the general energy, the look of the dogs, the smell of the dogs, that terrible rancid smell they have when they're eating dry food. Um, all that started to disappear. And I thought, my goodness. And, and it, then I began to write out little, little sheets for my clients to, encouraging them to feed raw. And suddenly what I was seeing was that a lot of intractable problems that were not being cleared up by conventional drugs just quietly and slowly disappeared. And it struck me, my goodness, this was a light bulb moment. We are creating disease through food. Most of these diseases do not have to be. And to me, this was an incredible revelation. And it started me on my journey to, that I still am on today. Um, and of course, I looked at human health too. So we looked at the whole gamut, but I start, that's when I started my research and started um, learning more about nutrition. But I could see that in many ways, you didn't have to know a lot. You just had to feed some very basic elements and the dogs got and cats got better. And that was the most astounding part, that this nutrition business, which appeared to be very complicated from um, a traditional point of, or from a traditional medicine and veterinary point of view was actually absurdly simple and, and that's a, I have that up on my thing today nutrition it's absurdly simple and it is mind you a lot of raw feeders are trying to make it complicated today and I've got to do something about that and in my next uh, official publications if I live long enough to produce them. Anyway, <laughs> I haven't written much for a while. I've been concentrating on cancer, but um, th there's a lot that needs to be said out there. So I think your very first book was, well, the one that I remember was Give Your Dog a Bone. Correct. Yes. Oh, um, man. How long ago was that? Uh, well, I started writing it in the late 80s. And I wrote about 65 introductions and each introduction was about 300 pages and a, and a, a client of mine his name was I'm his second name Cola okay? yeah anyway he said to me he said Ian what you have to do is write down a, a, a series of, of headings and titles for chapters and include all that material in that bit there and that bit there in this chapter he said you have to organize your book I said because I'm a very disorganized person. I'm probably the most disorganized person on earth. And so anyway, with his encouragement, I sat down. And the other thing that, that, that struck me was that most nutrition books are beyond boring. So I tried to make it as entertaining as I could. But whether I cheated, I'm not sure. Part of that was to um, get some cartoons into it. But uh, yes, so in that was... That was launched at a Bichon Frise conference in Western Sydney on the 17th of November in 19, 
1993. Wow. Yes. Uh, I had a local printer up the road print it. We did 3,000 copies. I advertised it in all the canine magazines um, around Australia, the, the, uh, the New South Wales canine, the, the, all the official organisations for shows, etc. And I got an immediate response. It was sold out within a few months. I couldn't believe it. Um, <laughs> but, so it, it just grew from there and ended up going to, the book ended up in England and the whole thing coincided with the um, sudden appearance of the internet. Um, the internet was on the rise. That's right. And one day somebody rang me up and they said, Ian, do you realise that people have got your book and are discussing it? I said, are they? And she said, yes, there's all these groups on, on, on the internet. And I saw, and they're called barfers. I said, really? Anyway, I had a look. And I, these, these people, they were passionate and they were um, fighting each other and, and they were calling each other names. But what was interesting was that they had got this acronym, BARF. And it started out, there was a lady in, I'm going to mention her name because I think she should. Her, her name is Debbie Tripp. She was in Canada. And she saw all these people and she said, my goodness, they're, they're like evangelistic Christians trying to proselytize and, and get people on board with their with their new religion. So she called them born again raw feeders. And that's where the BAF acronym came from. Anyway, I had a look at that. Oh, no, then the next thing that happened was that she said, oh, I better give this a go. So I think she was breeding fairly large dogs like German Shepherds. And she gave it a go. And she said, oh, my goodness, these problems are all disappearing that I've had. So she called it Bones and Raw Food. So that was the second iteration of the acronym BARF, Bones and Raw Food. Anyway, I looked at it and I said, oh, okay. Well, some, and, and the, word, the letters B-A-R-F are wonderful because you can come up with all sorts of things. Uh, for example, um, and you have to forgive this one, one of my clients who, who fed uh, chicken that was a bit off said, yes, it could also stand for bloody, awful, rotten farts. And, and they, yeah, fine. And um, anyway, I looked at it and I said, well, from a scientifically perspective, that's biologically appropriate raw food. And so that's, that's, that was my contribution at the time to the word BAF. And uh, from, from then on, it's just grown. And when we eventually produced a, a commercial pet food, knowing that BAF means to vomit, um, people said to me, you will never, ever get people to buy a pet food that means vomit but they were wrong as usual <laughs> people had bought bath so what 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 made you um decide to to make commercial pet food oh now this was thrust upon me um i i went to the um apdt it was 90 oh gosh early 2000s, late 1900s, I can't remember now, um, Pennsylvania. And um, I was speaking about raw feeding and a lot of some Americans approached me and they said, uh, we'd like to join with you in, in making raw food. Actually, I had, a, I had also been approached by some an Australian people, some Australian people a little time before that. That had folded. They, they wanted to, to join with me and produce raw food. Um, 
but for a variety of reasons that never happened. But we did have a trademark we had organised. And so anyway, these people in America asked me to join with them. And I thought, wow, this, this, this is going to be fabulous. And that eventually started off. Um, I'm not even sure I want to mention the name of this company. I'll leave it be for the moment because there was, in the end, it involved a lot of litigation, uh, which, nearly, which nearly broke us financially. It was, it was one of the worst periods of my life, actually. Um, I've had more opposition and more problems with uh, people who want to make um, money out of raw than I've ever had from the pet food industry itself. The pet food industry, I think, has left me alone. I think they, they figure out if they, if they don't engage me in conversation, in open debate, because they know I'm right, they will silence me that way. Not, not by either killing me or, or whatever, but that, that's the way that, and, and to a large extent it's worked. Uh, um, but then it hasn't worked either because the, the raw feeding has become enormous. We did our first tour. Um, our first tour was the United Kingdom and we did about four or five lectures in major cities in the United Kingdom. And that was with Catherine O'Driscoll, if you know Catherine, who's recently passed away. Yes. And she had invited us across there, and that was very successful. And then it was it was noticed in the in the Americas, and a lady called Kathleen Chin, who was running Puppy Works, which is um, uh, was was an organisation that promoted dog lectures and that sort of thing in the states. She invited me to come across, and I was very very new at lecturing. I remember. I did a pretty bad job to start with, but gradually learnt on the job. And um, in the end, it, it came, it started to improve. But I'm starting out, I, I was just awful. Um, anyway, that's another story. But but we 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 were three months in America, and we toured right across America. And it was late 1900s, 1997, I can't remember, early 2000s. But anyway, from then on, and we did several more tours, but that was the most successful one and the longest one. We did two days and three-day seminars right across America, starting up in um, Washington State and coming down. We went down to Florida, and then, then it went across and did the um, APDT thing and uh, up to Massachusetts, uh, right across. We everywhere it was amazing wasn't it? we saw the inside of a lot of american hotels though and and so on but um we saw a little bit of the country but not a great deal but we saw a lot of people and influenced a lot of people and i remember telling them the way to get this thing going first of all you have to tell your vet about it now he will be in he or she will be in great opposition to this but what i want you to do is simply demonstrate to your vet how healthy your dogs are because a very standard thing is people will bring a young puppy in and a puppy, the vet will say, my goodness, that's the healthiest puppy I've ever seen. What are you feeding? They say raw and they immediately say, oh, my goodness, you'll kill your dog. And that's, that's the response to the vet who's just said how healthy it is. Anyway, and the other thing I said you should do is start to organise cooperatives where you buy raw food together and then as a group you can buy it cheaply because it was starting to get expensive as this idea was taking off. And, um, and then you can uh, share in the costs and, and you have somebody distribute it. Well, of course, the Americans being the entrepreneurs they are, uh, immediately saw a business opportunity. And so a lot of raw food companies sprang up after that trip. In fact, the whole idea really took off 
after that, this idea of a complete and balanced so-called raw food uh, industry took off and eventually came back to Australia too because of the problems I had with this American company. And we had to, wife and I had to rebrand because we lost our brand and, um, and almost lost my name in America, would you believe? Uh, and, they, and they still owned at this company, which is pretty bad, but you know, that's, uh, that's silenced me. So again, it's a, a factor of people who are supposedly on my side have actually done a lot. But what that did do was make me form a, a company in Australia from which I learned an enormous amount about producing raw food, the benefits, of, even more benefits of raw and um, starting to produce or we produced, we have produced one so-called prescription diet, although it's not marketed as such because you're not allowed to from legal purposes, which is bar flight, which you have mentioned when you spoke to me at the, at the beginning of our conversation. But so as, as, as a student of Chinese medicine, um, which I was for, for a number of years, um, our best teachers are sometimes the people who are most in opposition to us. So I have to praise the people who have tried to do me in, in one way or another, financially or otherwise, because they have been some of my best teachers. So I thank them most profusely from the bottom of my heart and most sincerely, although at times it doesn't feel sincere. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, you, you are an inspiration to, I think, so many people. Uh, you know, from vets to to entrepreneurs, because you've run the gamut. You know, just just listening to your story, and we have barely scratched the surface. Really, is that you know you started you are you are conventionally trained as a vet. You know, you've you've never denied that, and and yet you know you ran a successful practice by actually teaching people how to feed raw. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know, and. And and then you you gained, trying to <laughs> well and 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 the, the most wonderful thing about you was that you know you love to serve, and you and you you wanted to teach people how to do it for free. You 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 weren't calculative at all, you know, which is which is amazing. Laziness. <laughs> okay, we'll call it laziness. You know, but thanks to you being so lazy, so <laughs> many people actually learned about raw feeding and you know bath you know, the bath diet, you know, in, in all its different uh, variation names, you know, um, you've created a legendary movement, you know, uh, rightly so. I mean, like people all call you the father, the father of bath, you know, uh, with so much love and respect. And, and the thing is, even when you decided to, to try your hand at the commercial side of, of making raw food, you know, um, just just listening to your story and how how you know you've managed to still come up very positive i mean i look at you today you know um gee whiz um how old are you now <laughs> uh, I, i'm a pre-baby boomer i was born in 44 which uh, i've turned 77 this year honestly you don't look it I, that's very really kind don't. of you i sometimes you really i feel it, it. No, you don't look it. I mean, like, I remember um, you meant you've got grandchildren as well, isn't it? I actually, somewhere out there, there's oh, a great, great grandchild. Grand. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah you, you honestly don't look it. You know, you've, you've had such a, a very full, 
full life, it's it's just you know remarkable, you know, because you've tried your hand at so many things from being an author, you know, um, a speaker, you know. And I would actually like to know more about how did you start being a speaker? Because you actually said that you were not good at it, you know. No. <laughs> I, I mean, by nature, are you? Would you say you're introvert or an ultra, um, extrovert? Oh, but I am a shy person, basically. <laughs> Always been very shy. Um, incredibly shy. Um, yeah, but, but funnily enough, but you get up, I'm very comfortable these days in front of an audience. It's easy to speak to an audience. It's not one of those terrifying things for me, for, for whatever reason, I don't know. Um, but one-to-one, or, or, you know, it, it becomes more difficult. I'm, I'm not a person that, that, that loves to go to parties or, or that sort of thing. I prefer to shy away from that, which I think annoys some people, but not like my wife who likes parties. But <laughs> I, <laughs> but I, I'll tell you one other thing. The reason, one of the reasons I wrote Give Your Dog a Bone was because I was sick of talking about it. So I thought if I write this book, then I'll never have to talk about it ever again because it's all down there in the book. Because what I really wanted to do, I always had this passion to become an artist. And so uh, what I wanted to do was write this book and then quietly go away and, and study art and become an artist. Well, it never really happened. <laughs> Oh, no way. <laughs> but just lately, since I've sold the practice and sold the pet food business, I've actually started to dabble back into art. And it's absolutely wonderful. I love it. Awesome. <laughs> but that's, uh, that's, that's, that's a side story. Well, maybe you should, you know, do some illustration and do a book with your artwork <laughs> and write your stories because you actually tell a good yarn you're 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 a good storyteller you're very well good. <laughs> if i'm up in front of an audience and i'm talking about something i'm passionate about yes and the thing is people say you must hate dry dog food and, and processed dry. No, i don't hate it i said all i want to do is tell the truth that's all nothing else tell what i see as the truth and let people make up their own mind Give them the power to judge for themselves. I never want to become this guru because I said, look, if I give you the principles, you can work it out for yourself. Again, laziness. Because I didn't want to. I'm not interested in the, the... And you don't need to know the details. It's not important. Everybody wants to follow AFCO or FEDIAF or one of those um, set of principles, which actually do not apply to raw food. In fact, they don't apply to anything much except to making money out of rubbish. But that's what they apply to. But you'll find now that a lot of people, and I'm actually going to speak to on, on this subject later at a raw feeding conference in England, which we'll do online, about the importance of not knowing all about that because anybody can feed raw. You don't have to be a nutritionist. Um, the, the thing that, that impedes most people for feeding raw is the knowledge of nutrition. And they think they have to know more. And, and the more they know, the, the, the more difficult it becomes. Vets are a case in point. And, prof and professional nutritionists, it's almost impossible to get the concept through their head. And they don't understand basic biology and homeostatic mechanisms. That if you feed an animal the food it evolved eating over millions of years, the inbuilt homeostatic mechanisms 
unless you're wildly unbalanced, we'll balance it out for you. And your body makes a lot of its own food in, in, in the gut from its own microbiota. On and on. There's a whole host of stuff we could talk about. But the bottom line is that feed, nutrition itself at its depth and, and the biochemistry and physiology is beyond complex. It's a cybernetic mishmash of enzymes all working pros and cons, pushing and pulling and all sorts of things. But in its doing, it is the simplest thing possible to do. And that's, that's, a, that's part of my, I guess, a mission that I, I want to take on in the, in the next few years is getting that message across because there are too many people who want to make it complex. They want to become a guru and sell um, data on how to do this. So don't, you don't need to do that. Yeah, because... That's another thing that, that I'm very passionate about. Because um, I'm a raw feeder, you know, um, over here in Singapore. And when I meet pet owners who are curious when they look at my dog and they see her with a high energy and she's acting like a silly billy, you know, yes. and she's running around like a maniac. And they, they, the number one thing, they, they are always amazed that she's going to be nine years old this year. She's about, about 20 kilos. She's not a tiny dog, but she's about 20 kilos. And she's a mongrel. And, you know, they always ask me, what are you feeding her? You know, and I just say, well, I'm feeding her raw food. And they have this blank look yes. on their face when you say raw. And, it, and you say, you mean you cook the food? Because, <laughs> you know, it's raw means cook, you know, for some reason. You yes. know, and, and I said, no, 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 raw as in uncooked. <laughs> <laughs> yes. and, you and have they, to produce an uncooked book. Yeah, and, and the face still, they, they're still not processing it. You know, they sort of still look at me very, there's a very long pause still. And, and they say like, you don't cook it? <laughs> I said, no, I don't cook it. And they're like, don't they, won't it kill her? I said, look at her. <laughs> she's, she's running around like a maniac still, you know. Um, so they, you know, so after that initial disconnect they have with raw and cooked the, the next thing they ask me to say must be very complicated because they're so used to the vets and you know commercial food pet food where they always tell you that it's um balanced complete and balanced yes you know that's that's the thing that um all pet parents have been sort of like trained you know by the marketing and going to the vet it has to be complete and balanced and if it's not you're going to kill your animal that's right. That's the mantra. That's the story. You know, so it's, 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 you know, it's wonderful, you know, like when I first read your book, um, the bath diet and, and, you know, you said, it's just really that simple, you know, you just feed, you know, and yes. you do rotations, you know, um, and, you know, you try to explain it, but because I think because I'm not a vet, you know, and, you know, for me, I'm, I'm about five foot. I'm, I'm a tiny little hobbit person, you know. Um, I love and, those stories, by the way. <laughs> uh, me too. Huge fan. And, and, you know, I just, you know, they, they sort of look at me, you know, in disbelief that, you know, it's that simple. And I said, it really is that simple. And, you know, when I look at your dogs with itchy skin, especially with the ears normally, you know, and, and, and the inflammation and everything, I said, you know, my, my dog, when I adopted her as a puppy from, from the shelter, she had all these problems. She had Demodex mange, you know, her gut health was very, very poor, you know. Um, I said, but when you improve the diet, 
you start to see changes, you know, and I told them, you know, just try, just try a little bit. And because, you know, Singapore's being a predominantly a Chinese population, majority, you know, we've got Chinese, Malay, we're Asian population here. So yeah. in Asia, for our staple diet is rice. Of course. Right. So for them, when they, when they show their love for the pet, for their dog or even cat, they will cook. Even if they don't, feed, if they don't buy the commercial pet food, they will cook it. Right. And, and they will cook rice. Yes. You know, and, and I said, if you take out the rice, just the rice, I told them. And even if you didn't want to feed raw, but just gently cook the meat, you know, and maybe some veg, but take away the rice, you will see an improvement. You know, and some people, if you know, they'll take me up on that challenge, and they, and then they, they, later on they'll come back and say, "Hey, guess what?" I said, "What?" You know, they were amazed, like, you know, the skin's improving. I said, "Yeah." So, you know, I said, "Like, okay, how about now you sort of <laughs> um, try to cook less?" You know, like don't cook your meat to death. Not don't do a well done steak, <laughs> but. You know, like maybe a medium rare or, you know, like rare, you know, yes. and, and, or like I will give them, you know, the one that will blow their brain is usually like, why don't you just crack a raw egg and give it to them? <laughs> like, a raw egg? And they think salmonella, you know, because <laughs> that, that's the big yes, deal, know, you know, yes. you yes, know, know, salmonella. And I, I saw a look at them and I said, you do know that your dog licks its butt, right? <laughs> <laughs> and they drink out of the toilet bowl if you let them. <laughs> and and they're still running around, <laughs> yeah. you know, even though they might have an itchy skin, but they're still running around. And guess what? They do eat the poop as well. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> you know, and and you know, so you get all these um uh, looks of disbelief. So every time, you know, there's a little barrier to sort of break down, you know, each time to try and convince them to to cook less to cook, to transition to raw, uh, it, it's, it's, it's quite amusing. But well, you when, are a wonderful ambassador, Amrus, for this. You're a wonderful ambassador. But, what, but what's amazing is when they actually do transition fully to raw, they will never go back. No. You know, and suddenly they become, you know, proponents. They, you know, it's like really, it's like those born again Christians as you're talking about. Born again <laughs> raw feeders. Born again raw feeders. That's you know, right. they, they will start, you know, telling everyone, you know, uh, what to do. And that, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's really that simple. <laughs> that's right. That's exactly right. It is that simple. And that's, that's the wonderful message. Yeah. You know, yeah. and I have to thank you for that because, um, if it wasn't for your books, because after your book, and like you said, after you did your, your super three month tour, which almost sounds like, uh, you know, like, a like, you know, what do you call it when you're going uh, for before the presidential election, when you, when you do your <laughs> campaign trail, right. Um, it's, it's like, I think after you did that three month long one in the U S and you said more companies started to, to spring up and, and sell raw food. And there was this awareness but strangely enough there was such a huge hoopla about you know uh, bath versus prey model raw feeding like the different types of raw feeding that's right um and i have to say between the commercial pet food community and the fresh feeding raw food community 
um, sadly, I think the raw fresh food community comes out as more argumentative. Uh, there's so much more. I don't know when I I'm not a big fan of using social media. I don't really use it that much, but when I do go online, um, because I want to learn from people like you, and I and I look at what's going on with all these um, so-called uh, proponents of raw feeding, and they have such a big hoo-ha about how the right there's a right way and a wrong way of feeding raw, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and then they talk about percentages. Yes. And all how much right. bone? How much bone? I, yes. I that, that's the killer, isn't it? The bone content thing. Oh. It, it, it kills people, whether or not you feed 10% or if you feed too much, you might, you know, kill them or I don't know, what is it? Or that's, And that's what I'm, that's really what I, my next thing is to get on. In, I want to produce a new edition of The Bath Diet probably where I talk about, I've, I've written a lot about AFCO and how it just doesn't apply and how all this silliness is. In fact, people with their 10% or whatever it is, and I'm really not sure what it is, um, they have to know that that's, it just doesn't apply and that dogs and scavengers who eat lots of bones in, in, their, in their evolutionary history have require more than that. And there's a lot of evidence. I mean, one of the simplest things was um, um, anterior cruciate ligament rupture. And it's related, in fact, to that. But I won't go into that now, but it's, there is a relationship between not enough bone, it's a manganese deficiency as it turns out, and um, an anterior cruciate ligament rupture. Anyway, putting, putting that aside, we just, and the cats actually do fit a whole prey model. And that's hardly, hardly um, it's, not, it's not, not exactly rocket science either, because what have they been eating for the last 30 million years? They haven't been scavengers, they've been eating fresh whole prey. So they require less bone. So they fit into that model. But your growing dog, particularly your, your giant breeze, does not fit that model. But anyway, look, putting all that aside, we really do, or I need to, to combat this. Um, but at the moment, I'm, I'm really concentrating on cancer because that's another area. And this is both in the human and the animal field where we have actually got the whole story wrong. Um, and my book, um, Pointing the Bone at Cancer, attempts to demonstrate that but I think I haven't done it well enough so I'm doing some more research and, and looking for some more evidence to, to show my point of view that cancer is in fact a disease that stems from the very simple program that's already there it's the same program that is embryonic stem cells the same program in tissue stem cells it's just that it's been taken over by a cell when it, when it heads into glycolysis because its uh, respiration is injured, as it was shown by Warburg and more recently by Safery. But anyway, that's, that's a whole other story now that I'm, that I'm working on. So my, plus, I'm trying to get some painting done. <laughs> <laughs> so, and, and enjoying that as well. A little bit, a bit of selfishness there, but it's probably good. Hopefully, it's good for me. Hopefully, it's good for my writing creativity. But um, yeah, so I'm, I'm got my mind on a number of fronts now, pushing for both the cancer story and also to get people again to think in in raw, in simple terms. And all that warlike activity you spoke of when I, when I first saw 
those things online where they were battling as born again raw feeders back in the early uh, 90s. I looked at that and said, there's no way I'm going to get involved in that. And I've never got on involved in any of that because it's just terrible. I look at the way and, and I think, oh, gosh, I could get on there and I could argue with these people. And, and, and I thought, no, there's no point. I just, I've just got to keep writing and lecturing and um, hopefully the message will get out. But anyway, um, there's, a lot of, there's a lot of experts out there who want to make it complex. Um, and uh, to, for the large part, people should ignore them and look to the basics from my point of view anyway. Would you say the evolutionary diet, I mean, like if we were to like compare it to like uh, humans, you would say it's, it's almost like, what do you call it? Okay, anthropological nutrition. Is that the right way of saying it? I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> uh, <You could> anthropo <laughs> anthropological. Anthrop Nut well, it's nutritional. It's, it's, it's nutrition. Well, they, they, they've come up with nutrigenomics, mm. um, which is nutrition based on the genome. But they're looking at, but again, they're looking at it from this very narrow scientific perspective where, oh, let's find a nutrition, a, a nutrient, and see how it impacts a pathway which either creates health or disease or, or, or impacts on both functions, actually. Um, but my point is this we are not nutritionists, trained nutritionists look at nutrients and try to compose a diet based on nutrients. An evolutionary feeder looks at food and tries to base a diet based on food, knowing that if they get the food components right, every nutrient that that animal requires will be present and be available in a biologically appropriate way. So they don't have to worry about all those nutrients and you'll be feeding the nutrients you know about, the ones you don't know about, the ones that we know about but don't think are essential, et cetera, et cetera. And it's that simple. For a long time, if you read a textbook on, on dog nutrition, they would talk about um, food, uh, vegetables as being, oh, it'll bulk it out and maybe add a bit of fiber. They, they, they didn't accept that it was full of phytonutrients that fought cancer, for example. Um, but we learn all the time. So nutri nutrition is in a very incomplete science. But feeding an evolutionary diet is the gold standard. You've arrived. It's that simple. And I actually spoke to a, a few nutritionists working for pet food companies, and they admitted that as the truth. But they said, but we, we can't do that. We have to take very cheaply available food and try to add to it what the currently understood um, nutrients are that are missing in the right proportions and we have to feed it at every meal because that's the only way that you can complete uh, produce a commercial diet that the commercial diet has to be complete and balanced um, and they're right it does because you couldn't do it that's that's a commercial thing that you need to do that but it, it now becomes an imperative for all feeders in the minds of a lot of people including raw feeders which is just absolutely wrong Yes, you balance the diet over time, over a number of meals. You don't have to make each uh, meal complete and balanced. Um, but, and, and it's so obvious and logical, but that logic is lost on vets and now the vast majority of raw feeders. 
who, and so raw feed is now put into the experienced and, and category, oh, don't try and go there, uh, and, the, and the novice. We're all novices, including me. Just, just, just feed food. Don't look to nutrients. Feed a balance of the foods that animal evolved to eat. And it really is that simple. And that's, that's what my very strong message is out there. Pointing the bone at cancer. Yes. What inspired you to write that? Um, family death. Very sad. Very particularly my wife's mother, Janet, because she's stayed with us for the last year of her life. Um, I have watched and I continue to watch the medical profession and to a lesser extent, maybe the veterinary profession, but still they use the chemotherapy and radiotherapy. No, no, I think that we're all, we're all similar. Kill their patients and do so in the most horrendous way. Um, chemotherapy based on mustard gas originally. And most of the chemotherapeutics we use have not changed for a long time and they're all cytotoxins. They destroy tissues and cells. Um, they destroy lives. You get on that medical merry-go-round and it's a one-way ticket to death for the most part. Now, it's not true of some childhood cancers. We, we know that. Um, but it was watching people die under, under the medical. And, and I knew it wasn't happening to my patients for the most part. And I didn't even know about the um, ketosis in the early stages. Um, oh, not, not as my, on my career um, as a raw feeder. I, I knew about it later on uh, when I wrote give you uh, pointing the bone at cancer. But um, all I knew was that the patients of mine or the clients of mine that had dogs, where they followed my advice, their dogs rarely got cancer. And if they did, it was late in life. And if, they, if it did occur, it was much less aggressive. And so I knew that, but I didn't know how to help my family. I didn't know enough. So I started to research it. And, the more, and, and, and it wasn't really till the last, last stages, and I, and I read Seyfried's book on cancer as a metabolic disease and really got introduced to Wahlberg the light came on for me and I started going back looking at the origin of mitochondria and how all that occurred and realised that the mitochondria are in charge and that it is they that determine whether we get cancer or not. And if we, the mitochondria which produce energy by oxidative phosphorylation or respiration or um, respiration using oxygen, if they get damaged enough in that function, if, they, if it happens over a long period of time, they switch to an alternative method of, of producing energy called glycolysis, which is much less efficient. But it's the way all cells that are reproducing produce their energy. It's the way embryonic stem cells, for example, in, sorry, in the early stages produce their energy. So, and, and you look at all reproducing cells in the body, they tend to go back to glycolysis. So when you turn on glycolysis in a tissue because its respiration is damaged, that is a signal that the cell is to go into reproductive mode. And that's also a signal it turns off the genes associated with DNA repair, which are very powerful. And so we start to get, as a consequence of the induction of cancer, a lot of mutations occurring and being retained, but they're not the cause of the cancer. 
they, they help maintain it and drive it from that point on. But if you attack those mutations and the genes that produce those aberrant proteins, that will not help the problem. Cancer is actually a metabolic disease caused by problems that result in tissues becoming under-oxidized or unable to produce energy through respiration, whether it's carcinogens. And those carcinogens preferentially attack the mitochondria, the energy producers, because the mitochondria are basically bacteria that have become uh, involved with cells. This, this is how the, the modern cell, which produced multicellular animals, came about, because they had this powerful mitochondria in them producing their energy, and they could become multicellular and all that stuff. And over time, all these multiplicity of controls to keep cells from multiplying once they'd reach for, say, in the liver, we don't want the liver to grow abnormally. So the liver cells stop reproducing at a certain point. And all those controls are suddenly cast away when a cell takes on this opportunity just, just to become free and reproduce itself. And this is the disease we call cancer. Once again, it's very simple. And we have to attack um, cancer as a metabolic disease. And, and there's a lot of ways of doing that, but we're not doing it to a large degree. We're attacking genes and gene products. And whatever we do that, we aren't going to win. And that's the sad thing. So our research needs to go in a different direction, but we have a major problem and it's called money. And it's the, it's the pharmaceutical companies. They are absolutely making a killing. I'm going to use that term out of pharmaceutical drugs to treat cancer. They need the constant supply of patients and they need the constant supply of patients who don't get better because then they can try a new drug and a new drug until they finally kill them. But in the meantime, they have, produced, they have made a lot of money out of these drugs. It's, it's the saddest thing. Yes, they do have a few minor successes. A few minor skirmishes are one. But overall, we are not seeing any improvement in the cancer statistics. And this is the saddest, saddest, terrible thing. And I'm hoping that my voice can make a difference out there. There are a lot of voices that are saying what I'm saying, and I'm, I'm just adding to it. And I'm hoping that my research, and I'm doing a lot of basic research into cancer, um, as, as a metabolic disease, my voice can add to the voices and, and that we can change this around over time. Where we don't let the pharmaceutical companies dominate us and result in this terrible toll that cancer causes, because it doesn't have to. So you, you <laughs> that's a down note, isn't it? <laughs> well, no, but it's no, it's important for, for people to realize that because you know, cancer is big money, is big business. Oh yes, yes. Um, cancer is a massive industry. You know, and what what's what a lot of people I think don't realize is that the cancer business soared in, you know, in the last, oh, even the last 50 years, you know, it's, it's really increased. I mean, like I have friends who are, you know, even in their 30s or even younger, sometimes even getting breast cancer, for instance, you know. Um, terrible, terrible. And, and, and these are, you know, in their prime, human beings in their prime. And when you look at the, our companion animals, for instance, cats and dogs, um, 
a lot more dogs are getting cancer. You it's know? the most cancer-ridden animal in the world, more than humans. I mean, like more times I've heard from people saying that their dog has cancer, you know, and they're so shocked, you know, uh, they, 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 they can't believe it. Um, even cats, um, I mean, cats have kidney disease and all that, but, you know, we, it, it's becoming so a lot more common now, you know, in, in our lexicon, when we are talking as pet parents, oh, you know, this animal has cancer, that animal has cancer, uh, some sort of lymphoma, you know, hemangiosarcoma, you know, and, and these are things that, you know, when I, when I talk to, say, um, my older friends who are dog owners, you know, um, they, they're like, you know, really, we never really had this problem. That's right. It, That's right. It's, it, but it's like, it's like a reflection of today's society somehow, our, our health, health, level of health, you know, for humans and our companion animals. Cancer is like the norm now. Yes, sadly it is. We live in a very toxic environment mm. and the food that we promote promotes that toxicity. It doesn't combat it. All, and, and principally, the biggest problem is the high level of carbohydrates and the amount of food that we eat, two things. Um, I've puzzled over the, um, the Eastern, the, the what are they called, the Chinese, the, the Japanese, the, um, all the people who eat a lot of rice. But what they do, a lot of them eat, they don't eat a lot of food. So there's two things. There's a calorie restriction component and there's a, and the foods that they do eat are very healthy to the, in a large degree, particularly um, the Japanese who eat a lot of seafood. And, and, rate, and, and their level of, say, selenium is very high and things like that. And you can trace cancer to areas where selenium, for example, is low. But the thing is, the biggest cause, well, the biggest cause, you could maybe a toss-up between our toxic world which, with our polluted environment, Everybody worries about carbon dioxide, which is a which which is a, a food which is a fertilizer for plants, and, and they want to call that bad. And we are putting so many chemicals into our environment, and that is bad. And the other thing we're doing, sadly, is we're promoting high sugar foods or foods that create a sugar metabolism in our bodies. And and between the sugar metabolism that drives inflammation and our toxic environment that's why we have so much cancer and a lack of exercise too and ox cancer hates oxygen uh, and it loves sugar so a lack of exercise and all those sugary foods and people worry about fat fat is the enemy of cancer but hey there's so much education that and we have a media that loves to jump on the bandwagon and they're still talking about saturated fat as bad and it's not <laughs> on and on, that there are so many problems out there that, that are not being addressed properly. And, and the other thing they're getting onto now um, is the specifically targeted um, chemistry or, or molecules that attack specific genes. Again, and I made that point earlier, that by, and they, they claim this is the way to go forward. And so that's why they're trying to map every tumour and look at the genetic changes so they can attack those genetic changes. But when they look at the cells in a tumour, every cell has different genetic changes. 
because it's, those are not the cause. They are the result of the cancer. And yes, they are now possibly driving it, but they're still not by attacking those specific. Which changes do you do you attack? Because every cell, every cell has a different set of genetic changes within the tumor. So, so where do you start? It's not possible. You can't develop enough drugs to do that. But by developing drugs that might shrink, and and the and the part of the tumor they shrink, by the way, is is the least um, offensive part, the the least dangerous part, leaving behind the the more dangerous. Um, parts of that tumour then to grow and, and, and multiply. You're just not going to win by doing that, and you never will, and they don't. So people will spend $100,000, I watch, over three months, with, with often with horrendous side effects, watch the tumour shrink, and then watch it return over the next six months and kill them. And they usually die in the most horrific of circumstances. So, and, they have this cachexia where they've lost all their muscle mass because the tumour has taken all the protein, converted it to sugar for its own rapacious appetite. It, this is a terrible situation. And it's creating money for the giant pharmaceutical companies. It's creating money for oncologists who, as I understand it, according to the truth about cancer, and, and I listen to some of this and wonder, wow, is this really true too? Only because it's so horrendous. Um, so the, the, the oncologist is, is apparently making a lot of money out of these chemotherapeutics, the pharmaceutical companies are. The only one suffering is the patient. And of course, I've made that point in pointing the bone at cancer. Mm. It's, it's a, a horrendous situation. And um, one that I personally am fighting against, and you asked the right question, why did I start this battle? Because I watch dear relatives die, and I'm still watching it. And I watch people get on television who have, who have the problem and who are being tortured to death by, by pharmaceutical companies. Terrible. Mm. It's, it's beyond terrible. So if, if you had, say, a, a pet parent today with a dog um, diagnosed with cancer come to you, you know, what, what, would you, what would you advise or say to the pet parent? Uh, we try and find out what cancer it is and, and what's being treated. Uh, I try to get them onto raw feeding. Um, we look at the ketogenic diet because we know that, um, and, and calorie restriction, but we're battling a lot of things here. We're battling a dog that may not want to eat that sort of food. Um, we're battling with an owner who is currently battling with an oncologist who was vehemently opposed to these ideas. Um, we're also, we, we have to think, get a different mindset. And I try to instill this in their minds that maybe we can't actually eliminate the tumor. What we have to do is put it in a holding pattern, treat it as another chronic disease because the, the, attempt, the attempt to kill the tumor, you wipe out the collateral damage is the patient. And that's what the chemotherapeutics and radiation does. I had a patient recently. We, we managed to get this dog into ketosis. It wasn't doing too badly. The tumour was still there. And sadly, the owner wanted to give radiotherapy. And I thought, well, I know that radiotherapy is much more controlled these days. So, you know, okay. Well, I mean, I can't say not. I'm, I'm not the primary. I'm only there to talk about nutrition. Anyway, the dog went ahead and had it. And, and I, thought, I hope she won't mind me talking about this because, I mean, she was devastated, I was devastated, but the 
the damage to the patient's mouth meant that, that the patient really could no longer eat, yes. you know, by the radiation. And so it ended up being put down. And we see this sort of thing all the time. And, but we also see some successes. So if we can, I mean, oxygen therapy is so important. So exercise is part of that. Actually using actual oxygen is, is important. But getting the dog off a diet that feeds the cancer. So as much as possible, a sugar and starch-free diet, one that will hopefully put the dog into ketosis. And the levels of ketosis, I should add to people who might be watching this, are much lower in dogs when the dog is actually in ketosis than it is for humans because they actually use the ketones quite well. And ketones are very protective against the bad effects of chemo and radiotherapy. They're also very protective against the brain. Um, but we still don't know enough. We still don't know enough about the metabolism of some cancers because apart from the fact that we think that most cancers are triggered by the, the animal going into this alternative mode of energy production, because they've had a, millions and millions of years of development of this multicellular body, they've got lots of tricks they can draw on to turn their metabolism around. And this is where we should be looking because and specific cancers will do that. In fact, there was a cancer that came up recently of the liver and the liver has this particular relationship because it actually makes ketones where the ketones were feeding the liver cancer. So we have to know these things. And my very simple advice at this stage is if your dog has a PET scan, which is based on the fact that cancer accumulates sugar, and that's a good reason to believe that the ketogenic diet will be useful because this, the tumours are actually being shown up because they've got radioactively labelled sugar in them. And that means that they are sugar feeders. So cut the sugar out. And just things like that. Um, and the less, the less we can injure these dogs with chemo, and I'm not saying don't use it. What I am saying, whatever else you do, whatever else you do, whatever else, change the diet and look and look at phytonutrients, look at calorie restriction, look at ketones and, and exogenous ketones probably have a role to play. That is feeding ketones as part of the diet, not just relying on the liver to produce ketones, but relying on the diet to actually supply ketones. Medium chain triglycerides, a certain sort of form of fat, pan and coconut oil, for example, produces ketones very readily in the liver so on and so forth. There's so much to know. There's so much more to know. And this is where we should be exploring. But we have a, we have a situation that was pointed out very, very strongly in a point, uh, the truth about cancer is that any modality that appears to work, and, and late trial is a case in point, B17, uh, apricot kernels, all that stuff, it's frowned upon and um, actually condemned. And people that use it uh, their practice, they, they, they're called quacks and their practice is destroyed, et cetera, et cetera. And they, they're often succeeding, but chemo is not. It's, it's beyond sad, beyond sad. It's terrible. It's criminal. So but that's, that's the sad side of all of life at the moment. I, I think you, you train as well in um, traditional Chinese medicine. Is that correct? I was trained in acupuncture. acupuncture, yes. Acupuncture. So the acupuncture side, we touched on the herbs a little bit, but um, uh, I'm more aware of their power than I have any great knowledge about them. 
uh, I think one, one of them, Artemisinin, is, uh, is absolutely brilliant. Um, there was a paper I read recently that a lot of the Chinese herbs are actually working on the mitochondria mm. and, and increasing its ability and, and working in that area of energy. And that's hardly surprising because Chinese medicine is an, supposedly an energetic medicine. Now, I don't know. I, I doubt very much that the meridians are true. I think that they're just a, a way of understanding the best way to, to find um, the points. However, putting that aside, I mean, it doesn't really matter to my mind. If, if you picture the meridians are true and use that theory, you're going to be very successful. Um, for some reason, that's a, that, is a bit, that has evolved. That's been an evolutionary thing. And it's, better, it's a better way to pick the points. But you have to be very well trained to do that. Um, but yes, I, I am a proponent. I do have training in acupuncture. Um, and so I'm an acupuncturist. Uh, and I'm, I'm very aware of the power of traditional Chinese medicine and some of the things it can do. And, and um, I'm looking at wormwood in particular, which produces artemisinin as a, as a very powerful one. But there are others too. So what would you say is the difference in approach to um, health or disease between um, Western medicine and Eastern medicine? <laughs> well, we, very simple. Um, in, in Eastern medicine, the, the traditional Eastern medicine, the, the doctor gets paid if the patient is well. In Western medicine, the doctor gets paid if the patient is sick. <laughs> That's a good one. That's a good one. Uh, I think I think Western society, we or Western medicine is very um, what do you call it? Very reactive when it comes to disease. Yes, absolutely. Symptoms, they react to it and they attack the symptoms. Yes. But, and but they in broad never, strokes, that's in yeah. broad artistic strokes. Yeah. That's that's the picture but they don't look at the root cause of what's causing the problem. Absolutely not. Absolutely not. I couldn't, I, I this, is, this is perhaps one of the things I noticed straight away in my training, nobody looks for the root cause. It, it's just assumed it will happen. Disease will happen. Mm. But we're not, not saying, but why? We're not saying, but we are now doing a lot of research to show that degenerative disease is largely based on mitochondrial malfunction. Whether that's getting out to practice is another matter altogether, and it's not, sadly, because if you look at your average GP busy prescribing drugs, the only person that comes in and does his postgraduate training is the pharmaceutical rep. So he continues to be reactive. Wow. I'm so thankful and grateful that you took the time to listen to this podcast. It would mean the world to me if you could subscribe, download, rate, review, and share this with others whom you care about that may enjoy it as well. Thank you. And remember to be kind to yourself and others. Have a awesome day, everyone.